This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hey everyone, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Jenna Spinelli, one of the hosts of the Journalism Channel, and I am talking today with Lewis Raven Wallace, author of The View from Somewhere, Undoing the Myth of Journalistic Objectivity, which was released in 2019 by the University of Chicago Press. Uh, Lewis, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, we, we interview a lot of academics on this show and, uh, we, we typically start off with, with some type of question about how they came to be interested in the topic that, that their, their book is based on. And usually it's some answer like they, their advisor told them about it when they were getting their PhD or it was something that they heard about from a colleague in the field. But, um, I feel like your story, the kind of origin story of this project is, is very different. Uh, came about maybe. Um, by by necessity, in 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 some way, is is that a fair way to think about it, or or how did you kind of come to be interested in this topic of of journalistic objectivity? Yeah, so I was working as a journalist when I started the research for this book, and I had been in public media for several years. Um, before I was in public media, I was an activist for a long time, and then when I started into public media, I was kind of um, you know, oriented to this very different world of uh, objective or supposedly impartial journalism. And that idea always confused me a little bit. But uh, as I got sort of deeper into the practice of journalism, I became more and more interested in where did this idea or ideal of objectivity come from? And why was it such an important value within that world? And And then not too long after Donald Trump was inaugurated. I was working for a national radio show called Marketplace, and I published a blog post on my personal blog um, questioning this idea of objectivity based on some of the research that I'd been already doing and just some of the things I was thinking about. Um, And it's a bit of a long story, but I was ultimately fired from my journalism job for refusing to take that blog post down from my personal blog. And so that was what actually led to this book was me being fired. Right. So, so yeah, you kind of took this, this deep dive into the history of, of objectivity and, and even the, the title itself, the view from somewhere, it kind of harkens to the view from nowhere, um, which, which I believe if it didn't um, originate with, with Jay Rosen at NYU, I know he, he uses it frequently. Um, so what is kind of that that view from nowhere mentality that you're you're pushing back against in this book and your your other work? 
So the phrase, the view from nowhere comes, I don't know if originally, but maybe most famously from a philosophy book from the 1970s by a philosopher named Thomas Nagel um, that is about the concept of objectivity philosophically and whether there's really, whether it's ever possible to have a view from nowhere or a sort of, you know, omniscient, impartial view as human beings, just of reality in general. And then it was Jay Rosen, the journalism professor and critic at NYU, who started really applying that terminology to journalism and talking about the um, impossibility of a view from nowhere or a fully objective view. And then somewhat ironically, the show that I worked for, Marketplace, um, had the a VP of Marketplace, Deborah Clark, who fired me, had given an interview not that long before they fired me talking about how Marketplace doesn't believe in a view from nowhere, um, implying that the show, you know, thought that we sh should and did have a view from somewhere, which was more or less the same point that I had made. Um, but I think the, the key difference was that I talked explicitly about uh, white supremacy and racism in the administration of Donald Trump and about transphobia. And um, it crossed over the line into a, a view from somewhere that wasn't acceptable uh, to yeah, the yeah, radio yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you, yeah, also, you talk also talk about kind of the, the Overton window concept, right, of what's what's acceptable broadly and, and you know what happens when ideas are reported that fall outside of that. Yeah, and I didn't know about the Overton window um, for the longest time, actually, but I learned about a similar related concept um, called Hallen's Spheres from this uh, writer named Daniel Hallen, who researched objectivity in the coverage of the Vietnam War. And he talks about this idea that there's this uh, a sphere of consensus that's like things that presumably everyone can agree on. And so you don't need to balance them out in your journalism. So that might be like, um, ideas like capitalism is good, uh, which again, this is presumably everyone can agree on. It doesn't mean everybody actually does agree, but you know, capitalism is good or patriotism is, is good. Um, concepts like that. And then the sphere of legitimate controversy is where, um, kind of mainstream journalism plays out. So, you know, left versus right type debates or, um, whatever controversy is being legitimized by the mainstream political and, journalistic systems at the time. And then outside of that, a sort of third concentric circle is the sphere of deviance. So anything that um, can't really be talked about or debated and different issues and concepts move in and out of those different spheres over time in this way that's actually kind of a dynamic conversation between journalists and activists and um, people. Yeah, and, and it seems like in, in some ways this uh, kind of view from nowhere mentality is sort of like the path of least resistance. Um, it's it's kind of about making sure that you're not criticized for by you know largely for for mainstream outlets. I know you talk a lot about about public media, um, but it, you know what can you do to avoid accusations of liberal bias from people on the right who are more than likely acting in bad faith when they make those claims. Yeah, and the the liberal bias thing is is somewhat new, you know, about fifty years old as a as an accusation that's been deployed. But this idea of sort of performing impartiality um, as a means to sell advertising or retain um, sponsorship or other other forms of financial support 
goes back to the mid late 1800s when we when you know before that almost all political reporting um, in the United States was actually partisan. It was funded by political parties, and that was how you got your information. Um, and then the shift toward nonpartisanship in news was always caught up with um, the business model of trying to you know sell more papers to a general audience and also uh, attract advertisers who didn't want to be associated with quote one side or another. Um, and so that the the partisan or sort of um, openly political press tradition continued alongside the nonpartisan or impartial one. And it was sometime in the mid 1900s that we got this idea that the nonpartisan one was sort of superior and real journalism. And there became this kind of gatekeeping around that. Um, and my argument is mainly that the gatekeeping is is bad and has been really damaging to um, you know our understanding of the important traditions of the fighting press, like the black press and the gay press in the United States, as well as our ability as journalists today to stand up for what's right. Yeah. And, and so what what was it, do you think, that ultimately put that kind of gatekeeping notion, you know, over the edge, so to speak, to, to make it kind of the the dominant mode in in journalism for for the last you know, half century, at least, and, and you know, even maybe back before that? So I guess there's a lot of factors there. You know, one of them certainly was professionalization. Um, before the early 1900s, there were no journalism schools. Um, it was, you know, kind of a almost like a trade that you would go into and be trained on the job. Um, and then the increased professionalization and sort of creation of this class of journalists who were trained in a particular way went hand in hand with um, notions of objectivity and also with gatekeeping, because we're talking about schools that were um, exclusive to white people, many of them exclusive to men, um, and then employment that was exclusive to white people and men. And so you'd, you'd always had a black press and black women like Ida B. Wells and Marvell Cook. Those journalism schools were, of course, exclusive um, of people of color and often of women, and then so were those increasingly professionalized journalism jobs. And so you always had journalists like Ida B. Wells and Marvell Cook, you know, Black women who were doing investigative work um, with a clear kind of political angle or political goal. Um, but the idea that they were sort of activists rather than journalists was a new idea that was coming out of this more professionalized class of journalists dominated by white men. Right. And, and you also um, talk in the book about the notion of kind of an extractive model of journalism versus something that is more collaborative. Um, can you expand on, on what, what that looks like? Sure. So I think, you know, I don't know like how far back that uh, extractive mode of journalism and storytelling goes, but I think it's certainly caught up with and tied up with capitalism, right? And this whole idea that stories and information are products that are bought and sold, um, which in, in global history is a relatively new idea and one that's created a lot of its own problems that we see now, right? So journalists are these, it, it, within that model, journalists are these mediators who operate sort of like, um, like miners going out and, you know, digging up information and or stories and pulling it out of people or communities and then essentially vending it someplace else. And this especially applies to national journalists and um, journalism organizations that are 
working in communities that they're not based in, but it can also happen with local journalism. Um, and that's considered completely acceptable and, and ethical to go as a journalist to, you know, someplace where you have no accountability to the people, take their stories, and then sell their stories to other people, which is, you know, n- no surprise given um, how often that same sort of structure happens um, with other types of products. But there's something I think kind of that can be um traumatizing and that I think of as also sort of morally and in a sense spiritually damaging about um, looking at stories and especially stories of pain and trauma in that way as products or as things to be uh, extracted. And so a lot of what I've been thinking about um, really since I finished the book and in working on the podcast based on the book has to do with, you know, what other models are available to us for thinking about storytelling Um, as non-extractive and as something that's actually, you know, toward justice and toward relationships of accountability and community building. Yeah. And this was something that, that you kind of had to grapple with personally, right? You were in Detroit reporting for marketplace and, and kind of going through some of this, this emotional back and forth about how, you know, what, what was going to happen with these, these very, very um, emotional stories you were, you're, we're gathering once you're there and kind of packaging them up in this like slick, you know, five minute radio format that would go out to, to people across the country throughout the world. Uh, you know, how did you kind of wrestle with, with those types of things? Yeah. So, I mean, anyone listening who listens to public radio has probably heard moments, right. Where um, somebody on public radio starts to cry and, or there's like something very emotional happens in one of those pieces of tape and we still call it tape in public radio, even though it's not recorded on tapes anymore. But when I was in Detroit doing the reporting that you're referencing, um, some of the reporting I was doing was about a a man who'd been killed um, unarmed by police at the border of Dearborn in Detroit. His name was Kevin Matthews, um, a black man and, you know, talking to his family. And the interview that I had with Kevin Matthews family was, um, just one of the most devastating, um, sad interviews that I have ever done. And, um, and I remember coming back to the, coming back from Detroit to the offices at Marketplace and, you know, the Kevin Matthews family had, uh, cried and it, it was so intense and, um, that sort of material in public radio is considered good tape. Like you, you scored, you know, and, um, of course, I wasn't thinking of it that way, but then you go to edit the tape and you cut it down to this four minute or six minute thing or whatever. And you're, you know, picking out these extremely painful moments from, of grief and loss from someone else's life and then turning it into a little short story that may or may not um, end up actually helping or affecting that person. And so there's just real questions, questions that I had about accountability and, um, you know, often as journalists, we're trained or taught to think about our accountability as being toward, quote unquote, the public in general or toward our audiences. Um, But I was thinking in that case about accountability to the Matthews family, right? Like, what is this story doing for them? And is sort of pulling out all of their pain and their trauma for my good tape um, and my radio clips and my audience at Marketplace that may or may not do anything that would end up helping the Matthews family you know, is that really worth what I am asking of them? 
And is it responsible right. and is it ethical to do that kind of reporting? Right. So if if you were going to go back to them today or or you know now based on your your current your current framework, how you think about journalism now versus versus how you thought about it then, what what might you do differently? How might the the final product that you end up with be be different than what ultimately ended up on the air at at marketplace? Yeah, so in looking back, you know, I think um as a white journalist coming from uh at the time an economics show with a largely wealthy white audience um outside of the city of Detroit, uh I don't think that marketplace even plays on WDET, or at least it didn't at the time on the local public radio station. So I'm just not sure now that I would do that story um, for that particular outlet. Um, All of that said, I think if I were to report, because I think it's very important actually that Kevin Matthews' story be reported on, his family really wanted his story told. You know, they wanted it told to a broader audience, and that was true. Um, So I think if I did do it again, I think one thing would be seeking outlets um, that were more relevant, um, getting that story out to audiences that might be closer, more empowered to do something about it, and then following up and sticking with it. So there was a lot of information at the time that the Matthews family didn't have um, about what had happened and that they were pushing to get released. And, you know, public pressure and report and journalism can, can help a lot with getting that kind of information released. And you know, I'd seen that in other cases and stories that I'd worked on. So, you know, I think following up and sticking with it is another thing that I would definitely do and developing more of a long-term relationship with the family, which a lot of journalists do, you know, and, and, um, and especially local journalists are really situated to do that, which is one of the many reasons why the disinvestment in local media is so troubling. Yeah, yeah, of course you get the, you know, stereotypical reporter from New York or Washington or California going to a diner in the Midwest and trying to like form some type of connection with the people there and there's like just distrust all around. Mm-hmm. Um so you you mentioned earlier the the kind of um community presses or you know uh, community media uh, landscapes that that had existed to to help report some of the the stories that the, the mainstream press wouldn't cover, whether it was uh, you know the the black press and, and and Ida B Wells or the the LGBT press covering AIDS in in New York in the in the early days. But there's also um, you you talk about kind of this tension between community and and mainstream media in that you know the the community on the one hand wants its stories to be heard and and consumed by a broader audience but maybe there's also this like distrust or the this kind of fear that they're not going to be covered in in the kind of correct way um can you, can you talk more about what what that tension looks like yeah so i love the the gay press in the 80s as kind of a case study for this because there was no divide between the gay press and gay activism, like the activists, it was activists who ran gay outlets, you know, they were doing reporting, they were doing journalism, but they were also often simultaneously and sometimes the same people who were doing the reporting were pressuring, you know, the New York York Times or the Boston Globe or what have you 
to um, cover gay stories, to cover the story in particular of the AIDS crisis, um, and to cover it better and more accurately. So a big um, battle in the 1980s between gay activists and the New York Times is that the New York Times wouldn't uh, use the word gay. They would only say homosexual. And it led to some funny formulations like, um, you know, the homosexual uh, community or um, homosexual parties, you know, things like that. That was not what anyone was calling those things at the time. But um, but the word gay was off limits for the New York Times until the end of the 1980s. And so that was among the reasons why it was really hard for the Times to write accurately about gay people um, and the gay community and, and then to write in a nuanced and um, thoughtful way about the AIDS crisis. And so gay activists in the city, many of whom were also involved with the New York Native, the gay paper, um, biweekly gay paper that was doing a lot of the best AIDS coverage at the time, um, those activists would meet with the New York Times, you know, editors, and um, they organized uh, protests and strikes and leaflets and all kinds of things. And then later on, ACT UP Against AIDS, the um, direct action organization, uh, did a lot of similar sort of um, pressure uh, toward the New York Times to do better coverage. Um, And so there was this really dynamic conversation, and it was the activists and journalists who who were out, who, you know, really couldn't have jobs in mainstream journalism because you couldn't be out. You could be fired from the Times or the AP or whatever for being gay. Um, It was those folks who made it possible for some of the stories that were ultimately told on the pages of the New York Times to be told. So in the 90s, you had, um, you know, some well-known Times reporters coming out or get being outed um, and eventually doing some really powerful coverage of the AIDS crisis from that perspective. But without that activism, it just wouldn't have been possible. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. And are there analogs to that today, uh, you know, communities that, that you are inspired by or that you see doing good work kind of in this, this similar model? Yeah, of course. There's so many. I mean, I think about, um, obviously, transgender media, transgender writers and activists have been um, doing a similar sort of, you know, using internet-based platforms to tell our own stories and to talk about our own communities while also um, applying quite a bit of community pressure and activist pressure on mainstream outlets to do better coverage of trans communities. And that's yielded a lot of um, results, actually, and a lot of change over the last 10 years or so and what gets covered about trans people and how that coverage looks. Um, I think another great example is um, immigration reporting, Um, you know, sort of activist immigration outlets and activist immigration reporters have pushed for um, the use of the 
terminology of uh, undocumented rather than calling people illegal. And in some cases, you know, gotten more mainstream outlets to make changes, again, not just in the terminology, but I think even more importantly, in like how they are thinking and writing about um, marginalized people and communities. Um, and so you see a lot of that, you know, with, for example, an organization that I do some collaboration with called Migrant Roots Media, based out of Durham, North Carolina, that is stories about the root causes of migration. And, and that organization publishes those stories, um, but also works to kind of advocate for um, more context in stories of migration in general. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like the kind of technology environment we're in today makes it in in some ways easier than ever to tell those stories. You can, you know, set up uh, a a Patreon and you know, a, a website and and use social media to help get the word out, as opposed to having to like physically print papers and distribute them and figure out a way to sell ads and you know all these these sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. The internet has been really amazing for that. And I think most um, trans media makers and trans activists will tell you that, you know, our movement, the transgender movement of the last 20 years has been, you know, just so driven by and intertwined with um, internet access and online platforms. Right. Um, so, you know, you, as you, you mentioned, you came out of the, the public media world and, and you spend a, a good portion of time in the, the book talking about the difference from the ideal of, of public media when it was founded in the early 1970s versus like where, where it is today. Um, can, can you walk us through kind of what, what those ideals were in, in the early days and, and how, uh, you know, you feel that that the public media has not lived up to those ideals. Yeah, so I think the first thing I want to say about that is that I think public media, in a way, has a similar struggle right now to a lot of our public or semi-public institutions, right, in this sort of gap between the stated ideals and the practice or lived reality. So the problems of public media are like the problems of democracy in general. Um, so that said, you know, public media was this kind of um, brilliant, lovely idea that emerged uh, in, you know, in the form of the Public Broadcasting Act of, I believe it was 1968. Um, and then we got, you know, PBS, public TV, and NPR, public radio out of that. Um, initially conceived as a way to ensure that the airwaves, which are considered a public asset, um, are not completely dominated by corporate forces that wouldn't be representative of all of the country. And so, you know, National Public Radio in particular was founded on this kind of idealistic vision of uh, uh, alternative and in some ways a sort of um, uh, quirky and hopeful and, you know, change-driven alternative that would um, not sound like or need to sound like the commercial news of the day and that would talk to and about people who weren't represented in that news. And that vision, I think, is still present in a lot of the work that's being done in public media, um, but has never been fully realized because public media was um, really white-dominated in its leadership from the start. Um, the criticism of that and analysis of that uh, started early. The first minority task force, it was called at the time, or, you know, probably would be called a diversity task force now um, for public media was in 1977. And 
1977, this task force said, or maybe it was 78 when they put their report out, said, you know, public media is asleep at the transmitter. Um, the diversity numbers are abysmal. It needs to do better. And that problem has never been kind of fully, uh, fully addressed. Those criticisms are still there. And I think that's because of this kind of um, toxic combination of um, political pressure and pressure toward this kind of false balance and um, false equivalency and left-right conception of objectivity, um, uh, financial pressure from Congress for public media not to have a, a quote-unquote left-leaning um, tone, which often when public media would cover, you know, um, gay people or black people or uh, immigrants or Latin America would be accused of that. Um, and then the kind of real conditions of uh, racism and racial bias in newsrooms. That is not a problem exclusive to public media, but really to any um, white dominated newsroom and white dominated space. And so all of that needs to be in some way addressed. Yeah, no, and I, I see a lot of parallels there with with academia too, both in terms of this, you know, academics maybe think that they should be this like neutral observer or they're, or they're worried about, about backlash from conservative students or ending up on some like dangerous professor list. But, but also as, as you were saying, the, the kind of um, white dominant culture also makes some of these, you know, some of these issues difficult to address in terms of making sure that everyone's voice is 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 heard on on campus. And you know, I know that you've been doing some work on on college campuses uh, since since the the book came out. I'm wondering if if you have seen some of these these kind of parallel dynamics play out in in the academy versus you know what you saw in in newsrooms. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think the the students in particular are really hungry for sort of a different framework or a different way of talking about um, about questions of diversity, right? Because it, if diversity is just about sort of representation and having you know a sprinkling of quote unquote different kinds of people in the room, um, then usually efforts at diversity end up failing because you, you can't actually accomplish um, the sort of larger visions of diversity uh, without looking at justice, right? And what are the reasons why um, Black people and people of color, immigrants, transgender people have been historically excluded from these spaces and why is it still difficult for them to access? And so it's not just a question of letting people in, it's a question of changing um, the culture, which is often um, white supremacist or white dominant in other kinds of ways. And, you know, we see that in newsrooms. We see that certainly in um, curricula <laughs> uh, that's taught in schools. We, you know, we see that at many levels of society. And so there is no neutral conversation that we can have about diversity and representation. That, that just doesn't exist. It's it's always going to have to be political. And if you're asking professors or students or student journalists to be completely neutral or to be completely impartial in their approach to these issues, you know, of course, that's going to be a um, confounding thing for them, because for some of us, our identities and our life experiences have always been politicized. And so I think neutrality really 
you know, at this point is a, is a dangerous concept to, to um, continue throwing around and one that's also been just so thoroughly debunked, you know, by philosophers, by people who study literature and psychology, by, you know, now even by journalists. <laughs> um, so, yeah, students in particular, in my experience, are um, because they have grown up in this same Internet age that uh, that my work is a product of. Um, are really hungry for different ways of talking about um, diversity and justice and perspective uh, and impartiality, not just in journalism, but in general. And what's been the reaction to your book from the journalism education community? I, I know that these these values of of impartiality and and neutrality are are very much baked into a lot of, of how journalism is, is taught across the country, as, as you were saying earlier. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there are um, sort of defensive or unhappy reactions out there, but I haven't been hearing about those. I've been hearing from the professors who, you know, are teaching my book and um, their students are, are loving it and, you know, sort of seeing, um, seeing themselves reflected in ways that some of the other texts that are being taught might not might not reflect this um, younger and more diverse generation of college students. Um, and so, you know, largely the feedback I've been hearing has just been, you know, positive and excited. Like this is a really needed tool to um, put this political historical moment in journalism in perspective. And, and my book is also largely is a history book and actually talks about the histories of marginalized and oppressed journalists at lots of other points in U.S. history um, who have, you know, pushed back or stood outside this objective framework and sort of historicizing non-objective or subjective journalism as real journalism that that should be taught in, in school. And um, that's been um, receiving mostly just a lot of positive and excited feedback. And what about you from a, a, a news consumer perspective? I mean, in, a, in an age when we're all kind of getting our news as it scrolls past us on our, our phones and our, our various feeds, I mean, how should news consumers think about these, these notions of, of impartiality and, and, you know, how can people, as they, as they are scrolling past everything in their feeds, kind of keep some of these things in, in the back of their mind when they're like evaluating news that they're consuming. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a very confusing scene out there, I think for news consumers. So on the one hand, I think we all kind of live in this same uh, quote unquote post-objective age. I don't like the idea of post-objective because I think objectivity was always a myth. Right. But I think we're at a point where a lot of people would tell you like, yeah, of course, objectivity is impossible or there's no impartiality, you know, that everyone is biased in some way or whatever. That's not a super, super radical idea. But because um, what we've been taught about how and why we should trust journalism, um, what a lot of people have been taught is, you know, you trust journalists who are impartial or you trust journalists who appear to be objective and that's how you assess um, whether you can trust someone we're left with this gap in sort of media literacy around what other models for trust might look like. And, you know, 
Fox News has tapped into its own model for getting people to trust it um, that has been really powerful and and really strong um, that is not necessarily connected to the honest and rigorous pursuit of evidence-based facts. And so, you know, there's an understandable... It's a very kind way to put it, by the way, very diplomatic. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I try to be careful with my use of these concepts of facts and truth, right? Because I do think that all of it is, in a sense, um, subjective and sort of always in process (laughs) um, or always in progress. And so, you know, um, how to trust things or what to trust in terms of outlets is something that um, a lot of people feel sort of at a loss for and it's like there's no silver bullet with that you know on the one hand I want to say you know trust your gut but I actually think maybe more important is that um, we have a much more robust program of education about what journalism is and how it works and what evidence is and how we come up with it and we don't have to be objective or impartial as journalists in order to be people who are engaged in a really um, rigorous and honest pursuit of uh, verifiable facts to the best of our ability. And the more that we can kind of show our work and reach out and hold people's hands in terms of our audiences and helping them understand what that work is and how profoundly different it is from punditry and Fox News and all of that, um, I think the better that relationship of trust will be. But just simply saying we're objective, we're impartial in giving this performance um, of that is no longer working and, and hasn't been. And the right wing media has figured out a really insidious way to sort of capitalize on that by just simply pointing fingers and saying liberal media bias about anything it doesn't like. If you can write off anything that's biased as something that can't possibly be true, you can write off anything you don't like. Sure. Um, although it, it seems at least some kind of mainstream outlets are, are like doubling down on this impartiality um, notion as, as we head into an election. I think there uh, um, earlier this week as, as we record. So um, March 2nd, there was a big piece in the New York Times all about how their reporters stay impartial, everything from, you know, not going to rallies or wearing, you know, putting bumper stickers on their cars to support a particular candidate all the way to not not voting in in some cases, um, you know, I just heard a, a reporter from another major outlet interviewed on a podcast recently, and this person was talking about how, um, you know, they really strive to to be impartial and their, uh, you know, their work, you know, representing this kind of both sidesism. So, you know, what what do you think it would take to really get through to some larger media organizations to to really bring this this perspective that that you and others have to some of these larger structures, or I guess, is that, is that even possible right now? Do you think? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, I don't know that my goal is to reach out and sort of transform, um, you know, the New York times or uh, Washington post or CNN or what have you um, in terms of their leadership. You know, I will say, I think that um, when it comes to the health and safety of our democracy in the future, that um, they are gravely mistaken to pursue this strategy of ongoing claims of impartiality and neutrality um, in the face of rising authoritarianism. I think that's dangerous and um, dumb, 
<laughs> uh, but that said, you know, I, for me, my priority is to um, reach people who are already kind of activated around these issues and further empower those people to take action. So I know for a fact that there's people who work, you know, even within the New York Times, um, NPR and so on, who are already pushing sort of saying, hey, we can't have diversity without justice. We can't stand up to Trump without naming white supremacy. Um, we might appear to be quote unquote biased or uh, quote unquote partisan in some way if we call Trump uh, or the people who support him um, white supremacists or racist. But, you know, if that's the truth, it needs to go ahead and be said. Um, and I think um, the people who are sort of activated in that way and, and pushing in those ways is really who my book and my podcast and my whole project is for. Um, to kind of say, hey, you are part of a tradition that is long and ongoing of um, fighting journalists who stand up for justice. And um, you should still be a journalist, whether or not that's at the New York Times or um, in your own outlet that you go and start or in a, a local media or whatever. And there are many, many different kinds of um, new projects and efforts at media production that I think is really where a lot of that energy is going. Um, but I also want to support people trying to make change from inside of those large organizations. I just think the leadership of those organizations are, are wrong and quite hypocritical on this issue. Right. And, and so as we, we start to uh, wrap up here, um, what's, what's next for you? Uh, where do you see things going uh, as, as far as more research in this area? What's, what's next for your podcast? Where, uh, whether other trainings are you doing? Uh, what's what's coming up for you? Yeah, so I co-founded an organization called Press On with a group of um, mostly women from the southern U.S. Um, who we are working as a collective to support movement journalists in the South, so journalists who are working in service of liberation or are working in service of racial justice. And we have a fellowship program called Freedom Ways that's all Southern women of color journalists reporting in their own communities. Um, so I'm kind of a, a wing person for that. Um, and then I run a training program called Transforming Journalism Beyond Diversity, where we really dig into a lot of these ideas around, um, you know, sort of pushing past the framework of just diversity and toward the framework of justice in newsrooms and in the journalism industry. And we, we lean on and tell the stories of um, Black liberation and Southern resistance um, within that training. Uh, so we're training journalists around the country um, in trainings that are often open registration. So people can look at our website, which is presson.media, to find out about those trainings um, and the other work that we do. And so that's some of my work. And then the, the podcast, The View From Somewhere, um, is also working on episodes right now that are about some of these solutions and answers and, you know, moving beyond objectivity to what? To community-engaged journalism, to solutions journalism, to movement journalism, and uh, looking at um, hopefully kind of a broad range of what is possible in terms of the journalism of the 21st century and of the future that's grounded in these histories of resistance. Well, great. Um, well, we'll be, be sure to, to link to to press on uh, in in our show notes as well as to your your book and the podcast. I just have to say personally, it really 
uh, changed a lot of the way that I think about doing journalism and about teaching journalism. And I, I would highly recommend uh, that folks pick it up. Uh, again, it is called The View from Somewhere, Undoing the Myth of Journalistic Objectivity. It is out from the University of Chicago Press. Uh, Lewis, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thanks so much, Jenna.